Even though we are not able to meet in person today, I am so thankful for the technology that we have to pre-record this video and to pre-record the music. I hope that you enjoyed that. Now, if you have your Bible with you at home, I would like to invite you to take it and open it to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And the title of our message today is My View of Evangelism. My View of Evangelism. I would like for us to read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 20. The Bible says, Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that we may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then were all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yet though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I am so thankful that even though we are separated today by uh, miles, that we can gather together online and open your word and hear your voice. Father, I pray and ask that you'll lead and guide me this day as I seem to see Seek to make your word clear. I pray and ask, Lord, that you would help me be faithful to your text and to say only what you have said and nothing more and nothing less. Father, I pray that you would remove all distractions this day for those who view this video. And I pray and ask, Lord, that they truly would enter into your presence and into worship and that your word would do the surgical work that you wanted to do in our spiritual lives. I trust, Lord, that you can do above and beyond all that we think or ask through your mighty power and through your Holy Spirit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In a follow-up to last week's message on salvation, I want to present my view of evangelism. Evangelism is the proclaiming of the gospel. 
In other words, it is spreading the message of salvation. I know evangelism may not be a word that we use every single day, but it simply means telling others the gospel message. As you think about your worldview, it is interconnected through different areas. So if salvation is needed by the world for the forgiveness of sins against God, in order to escape the eternal punishment of hell, and if salvation comes exclusively through faith in Jesus Christ, then telling others this important news must become a priority. You see, our worldview affects not just what we believe, but also what we do. Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. This means that what you believe will manifest in what you do. If I believe that life begins at conception, then I will not have an abortion or support it in any way. If I believe that gender is biological and binary and assigned by my creator, then I will not consider becoming transgender through medicine or through medical procedures. If I believe that there is a God, I will seek to live in accordance to his laws and his commands. If I believe in salvation, then I will tell others. As we think about this work of evangelism, this view that we should have of evangelism, I'm afraid that Christians today see it as an option. They see it more as something that the pastor does or the professionals do or the person with the gift uh, does this. But the fact is the Bible gives the assignment to all of us to evangelize. As we look at our text and we examine it, uh, that's what I would point out first to you, is that evangelism is our assigned work on earth. Second Corinthians chapter 5 is talking about how that life is temporary and that we are housed in this physical body and that while we desire to go to heaven and to be shed of this sinful flesh, we realize that God has left us here for a purpose. That's why he didn't just immediately take us to heaven when we got saved. He has left us here for a specific reason. And verse 9 says, Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. When we look back in the context of 2 Corinthians, we find that 2 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4 are describing the ministry of the gospel that has been entrusted to Christians and the resistance that comes to it. God never in his word said that evangelism would be easy. He actually told us that there would be resistance to it. That if we choose to follow his command and to obey his commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel, that there would be resistance to that and that we would invite certain difficulties into our life. As we look at our text, we see that in chapter 5, Paul begins speaking about the temporariness of our human life on earth and our future in heaven, to which he reminds us that we are here on assignment. We are not here on vacation. We are not here for leisure. We are not here for our own self-pleasure. But we are actually here on assignment given to us by our Lord himself, by our Master 
We cannot live our lives, Paul reminds us in chapter 5, waiting and wishing for heaven when we have a God-given job to do. As I think about what we've been through in this year of 2020 and the pandemic and the protests and the riots and the unrest and the economic shutdown, all of those things, I hear more and more from Christians their desire to, to leave this world and to go to heaven. And I feel that too. I understand that. The Apostle Paul understood that. In fact, in Philippians chapter 1, he said that he had a desire to depart and to be with Christ. He said that he was between a rock and a hard place because he did have this desire to go, but he realized, he goes on to say in Philippians 1, that it was more needful for him to stay here, that God had left him here for an assignment. And so you and I cannot just endure our lives right now waiting and wishing for heaven to come but we need to realize that we have a god-given job to do that's why verse 9 says wherefore we labor that we might be accepted of him remember last week we discovered that we do not work to salvation but we work from salvation in other words in that text in Titus chapter 3 it reminded us that salvation was not by works of righteousness which we have done but according to his mercy he saved us but then it goes on to say that we are to be careful to maintain good works Works is a part of salvation, but it is not what gets us saved. It is the fruit of salvation. It is the product of salvation. It is what follows salvation. And so we have a God-given work to do. Evangelism is one of the chief works that God saved us for. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, speaking of evangelism, says this, the Apostle Paul writes, Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. And he goes on to say, For we are laborers together with God. Isn't that amazing that we have an assignment, but God didn't just send us here, leave us here to try and figure out or invent the best ways that we can carry out this assignment, but we are actually laborers together with God. Jesus told us that he was sending his Holy Spirit into our lives upon his ascension. He told his disciples when he left to, to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Acts 1.8 says that after that they received the Holy Ghost that there would be power upon them to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 9 says that we are laborers together with God. We have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us and leading us to fulfill our assigned work on earth which is evangelism. I would remind you that evangelism is clearly our assigned work on earth. Just think about Jesus' last words that are called the Great Commission. You will find them at the end of all four Gospels and at the beginning of the book of Acts. Jesus repeated that Great Commission five times in those 40 days that he appeared to his disciples after his resurrection and Mark 16, 15 gives us a very good summary of what it is. 
Jesus said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That is our assigned work. That is evangelism. But as we dig into our text of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we discover that it is not just our assigned work, but that it is our assigned work that we will be held accountable for. You know, that makes all the difference in the world when we consider that what we do is going to be brought into review. It is going to be inspected. In our text of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, the Apostle Paul goes on to write this after telling that we labor. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to... To that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. The judgment seat of Christ is the final judgment for Christians. It is not a punitive judgment for our sins, because our sins were judged in Jesus, and he took our punishment for him. So we understand um, from Bible prophecy that there are two judgments in the end. There is the judgment seat of Christ for Christians, and there is the great white throne judgment of God for all non-believers. The great white throne judgment is described in Revelation chapter 20, when the dead, spiritually dead, are assembled before God, small and great, young and old, that the books are open and that they are judged out of those books And the only people who escape that judgment are those who have their name written in the Lamb's book of life. That judgment is a judgment for the unsaved. But there is a judgment for Christians. It is called the judgment seat of Christ. It's not a punitive judgment. Uh, it It is more of a performance judgment. It is a judgment of our performance indicated by the Greek word bima that is used in this text, which is translated judgment seat. It was the idea of the seat upon which the judge of a competition would sit and would review the, the records and would review the performance and would uh, distribute the awards to those who, who won or who placed in, in that performance. And so there were guidelines in which they had to operate. They were judged on that. Uh, There were uh, point systems that they could score that they were judged on that. And only those who had the performance got the rewards for it. Well, as we think about the judgment seat of Christ, it is not a punitive judgment. It is not a punishing judgment, but it is a performance judgment in which we have the opportunity to receive rewards for the work that we've done on earth. Not for our own accolades, but like the, the, the sportsmen of old, they would lay their crowns at the feet of their king in honor of their country and their kingdom. And in the same sense, we get to do that. But I want you to consider what this judgment is, because even though it's not a punitive judgment, it does say that we can suffer some loss. It does say here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, that, that we uh, are going to give an account and that we are going to receive the things under our body according to what we've done, whether it be good or bad. 
And so many believe that 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15, is a description of that judgment seat of Christ uh, that is mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me read this description to you from 1 Corinthians 3. It says, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, good, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day, the judgment day, shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, I would say the fire of judgment, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire." And so clearly in this text, it is describing a day in which people are going to stand before God and they're going to have their works judged. Those works that are equated to gold, silver, and precious stones are the works that are going to last. They're not affected by the fire. But the wood, hay, and stubble works will be burned up and it will sort them. It is the fire of the judgment that will sort these works. Well, as we think about that and we process that, we need to realize that this is a divine review of our works from the time we got saved to the time that we go to heaven. This is not a judgment uh, of what our sins were before we got saved. Those were all judged in Jesus. But it is a review of the works that we have the opportunity to do from the time that we get saved until the time that we stand before the Lord. There are two categories into which all of our works are sorted. Now, the Bible text described it in terms as this, gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. Well, that was illustrative to help us understand uh, that if those things pass through the fire, the fire is not going to hurt the gold, the silver, the precious stones. In fact, it would only serve to refine the gold and the silver if there were any dross in it. It will not harm the precious stones. But the wood, hay, and the stubble would be consumed. It would be uh, turned into ashes. Well, this is telling us that these two categories really break down to this. They are temporal and they are eternal. That is, they are only temporary. They are only found during this time on earth and they go no further. Or they are eternal and will be carried into heaven with us. Like the parable stewards, uh, steward parables of Jesus, we will be called into accountability for the time, talents, and treasures that our master gave us. Now think about those stewardship parables that Jesus spoke while he was on the earth. He talked about the master who left for a period of time and he gave to his uh, stewards, his his subjects. Uh, he gave to them either treasures or talents that they were to wisely steward or manage or invest while he was away. 
And that when he came back, there was a judgment. There was a review, and he called them in. And the one who had invested and and got a return, uh, they got an accolade. They got a reward. But the one who says, you know what? I I knew judgment was coming, and I was fearful, so I just buried it. I hid it. I didn't do anything with it. Uh, He did not get a well done. He did not get a reward. Uh, He actually got got a rebuke for being uh, an unfaithful servant. Well, Jesus was painting a picture for you and I of what this judgment seat would be like, that we're going to stand before him and that you and I have been endowed with certain talents, certain treasures, and a certain amount of time. And that is going to be brought into review by our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the judgment will reveal whether we invested in the temporary things of this world or the eternal things of heaven. That's what it's going to shake out to be. In this time that God gives me on earth, from the time that I get saved to the time that I go to heaven, have I lived that for myself, or have I lived it for God? Have I lived it only trying to accumulate the temporary luxuries that this world has to offer, or have I actually invested my time on earth in something that will be eternal and that will have an impact in heaven and in eternity? Without a doubt, evangelism is an eternal work because it seeks to save the eternal soul of man. Evangelism is an eternal work. If you say, well, well, the Bible says gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stuff. How do I know which is which? And you simply ask the question, which one makes an impact on eternity? You see, I could invest my entire life simply trying to accumulate the, uh, the property, the home, the cars, the, uh, the retirement, the wealth that I want. But, you know, that's not going to leave heaven. As the old saying goes, uh, you never see a U-Haul pulled behind a hearse uh, because you don't get to take it with you when you go. But there are some things on planet Earth that are eternal, and those are the souls of men and women. And if we invest our lives in trying to reach an eternal soul, that is an eternal work. Perhaps it is the greatest eternal work or the most important eternal work. Perhaps there's nothing more important than the eternal work of evangelism, which is why this is one of only two passages in the entire Bible that speaks about the judgment seat of Christ. Think about that for a moment and the ramifications of that. This is one of only two passages in the entire Bible that actually identifies the judgment seat of Christ. One of two. And so this is reminding us that evangelism is an eternal work that's going to be brought into review And that we have a limited amount of time and resources on planet earth that we can invest in eternity. But not only do we find that it's our signed work and that our work will be be brought into review and will be held accountable for that. I would also remind you that our text says that we evangelize because we fear for men's souls. We fear for men's souls. Look back at our text 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. The Apostle Paul writes this with all sincerity. He says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. 
Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. What is the terror of the Lord? Well, it is the Greek word phobos. It's where we get the word phobia. It is translated throughout the Bible uh, into different words for fear, fear, anxiety, terror, awe, shock, reverence, all of those things, depending on the context. And so when I'm reading this and I'm considering who's writing it, I know that the Apostle Paul is not talking about the terror of the Lord that he will face because there is no fear in death for the believer. God has not given to us the spirit of fear, but of a power and love sound mind. And so the terror of the Lord that is motivating here is the terror or the fear of what will happen to unsaved men and women who face God and his full wrath against sin. Paul writes that he evangelizes because he knows the awful destiny of a soul that dies without Christ. That's the terror of the Lord that uh, compels him uh, to persuade men about Christ, to evangelize people about Christ. Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verses 30 and 30, Uh, 31 declares it is a fearful thing it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God is a fearful thing I am afraid that for people like you and I who have trusted Christ who know the joy of being a born-again child of God being adopted into the family of God as a full heir with Christ knowing the elaborate and lavish love of God that he pours out in our lives, that sometimes we forget how terrifying God actually is to a person in their sins. We dare not deceive ourselves into believing that God is docile. We dare not deceive ourselves into believing that God is tame, that God is harmless, because of the abundant grace that he shows us in this life. Is God good? Yes, absolutely, without a doubt. And we experience his goodness every single day. Even people who do not believe in God, even uh, the most vehement atheists on planet Earth, experiences the grace of God every single day of their life. But we dare not allow that grace to deceive us into thinking that God is docile and not dangerous. You see, the judicial wrath of God against sin must be executed. And while God defers his judgment at this time, and he doesn't send an immediate judgment for the immediate sin, but he delays his judgment out of mercy and grace, the judicial wrath of God against sin must be executed sooner or later. It will come. It was executed against Christ on the cross as a substitutionary atonement so that those who are in Christ are safe from his wrath against sin. You see, the awfulness that Christ went through on the cross, the scourging, the beating, the plucking of his beard from his face, uh, the the near-death beating, the shame and the mocking, uh, the stretching out, being nailed to the cross, hanging there for hours as his body labors under its own weight, trying to breathe. And then the wrath of God that has to be poured out on him for the payment for our sins. When he cries out, Elama, Elama, uh, uh, Saba, uh, 
My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, he says. And what he is describing is the judicial wrath of God that is being poured out on our sin in Jesus as our substitute. In fact, in our text of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the last verse of the chapter, it says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so, yes, you and I who believe in Christ know that we have no fear in God, no fear of his judgment. But to those who have not accepted Christ, God is dangerous. In fact, God is the greatest danger that mankind has in this world. We don't often think of God that way, but just think with me, if you would, about the judgments of God. We have the judgment of the flood in Genesis chapter 6 when God destroys the entire earth and all the inhabitants on it with a great deluge of water, saving only Noah and his family. We see the judgment of God on Sodom and Gomorrah when fire and brimstone literally fall from the sky and consume an entire city. We see the judgment of God on the nation of Egypt when Pharaoh will not let God's people go and the ten plagues that come that absolutely decimate the economy, the morale, the people, the land, the livestock, the agriculture. And then that judgment is punctuated by the Red Sea drowning Pharaoh and all of his army. Just think about the judgments of God that have been revealed to us through Scripture and the judgment that is prophesied in Scripture. That while God said He would never judge the earth again by water, Peter talks about a judgment of fire that is coming, that the world will be burnt up and consumed by it. You and I have to understand uh, that that is not, that is not a third-party force but that is the direct result of God's judgment. You see, Jesus said in Luke 12, 4 and 5, I say unto you, I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed, hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Did I mention that it was Jesus who said that? That it was not some wild-eyed Baptist preacher, that it was not some fanatical street prophet who is saying these words in a deranged tone, but that this is the very Christ who came to die for our sins, who came from the Father and returned to the Father and made a way for us to be reconciled to the Father. He says, let me tell you who to fear. Fear him who has the power to cast your soul into hell after death. I'm telling you, 
we evangelize because we fear for men's souls. We truly fear for men's souls. We ought to tremor when we think about what will happen to the person who stands before God outside of the atonement of Christ because there will be no mitigation of his wrath. There will be no shielding of his fury. There will be no uh, diluting of his judgment. But the lost man and woman who dies without Christ will experience the full force of God's wrath. And Paul said, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And I would say to you that in our view of evangelism, we ought to evangelize because we fear for men's souls. Fourth, and what I would say is stronger than the motivation of fear, is that we evangelize because we are compelled by the love of Christ. We evangelize because we are compelled by the love of Christ. Listen to what our text goes on to say, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him who died for them and rose again. Yes, I, I truly believe that there is a hell that awaits those who reject Christ. And I believe that it is just as awful as it is described in Scripture. In fact, Jesus spoke more about hell than anybody else in Scripture. Jesus spoke more about hell than he spoke about heaven when he was on planet Earth. I, I believe that hell is awful and that it ought to motivate us to go and evangelize other people. But do you know what I find more compelling than the fear of hell? It is the love of Christ. It's the love of Christ. It's the fact that Christ loved us to the extent that he was willing to leave his throne in heaven where he did not have to be rejected, where he did not have to come to the world that he created and have them not know him and mock him and try to execute him. He owed nothing to you and I. We were the sinful rebels. We were the ones who had sinned against him. And the price for him to redeem us would be his very life's blood and to take the full force of his father's wrath in himself so that he could save us. The love of Christ is the greatest motivation that I know in all the world. I think about what John the Apostle of Love wrote near the end of his life in the little letter of 1 John. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. John interjects in the middle of his letter with this alarming phrase, Behold, it is shouting, Hey, look out or look up here. Pay attention to this. Out of everything that's going on in your life, out of everything that is crying for your attention, shut that out and pay attention for this just a moment. Behold, what is it, John, you want us to see? Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. That word manner is interesting. That word manner means something that is foreign, something that is unknown, something that is out of this world. In fact, as I think about the way that that word is used in Scripture, 
It is very telling to us how it is describing the love of God in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. The first time that it is used, it is used by Mary, the mother of Jesus, when the angel appears to her and announces that God has favored her. She says, Behold, what manner of salutation is this? Think about that for a moment. There's never been a salutation like that before. Yes, there have been angel messengers who have come and brought messages to people on earth, even announcing births to like to the mother of Sam, uh, like to the mother of Samuel. But never before has there been an angel who came and announced the incarnation of Christ. And so Mary says, Behold, what manner of salutation is this? It's unlike any other salutation in the world. Another place in which that word manner is used is when Jesus goes to Jerusalem with his disciples, and they're from up north in Galilee. So it was a treat for them to go to Jerusalem, uh, to uh, the center, the capital of not just their territory, but of their worship. And they come to the temple that was the most magnificent building in all of Israel. And his disciples say to him, Behold, Lord, what manner of stones are these? And while I've never had the privilege of seeing those stones, I am told that archaeological excavations have shown that there are still stones in the foundation of the temple that are 12 foot tall and over 40 feet long, truly, There were no other building stones like that in all of Israel. No other house, no other edifice, no other building had been built with those stones. They were one of a kind. But I think the most descriptive use of the word to help us understand what it means when John is saying, Behold, what manner of love is this? Is when Jesus and his disciples are heading across the Sea of Galilee after a tiring day and weeks of ministry. And Jesus lays down to sleep in the boat as he was fully God yet fully man. He experienced all that you, all, you and I experience in hunger and all of those tiredness. So he lays down to sleep and as he does, you know the story A sudden storm sweeps down on that sea, which was frightening to these men. Even though they were fishermen, uh, they were terrified of that sea. They saw it as an abyss. And as they are trying to row and they're trying to build water, they are literally scared to death. They go and wake Jesus. And to see how fearful they are, they say, Do you not care that we perish? Now, what a foolish question that is. Jesus is in the boat. Do you really think he's going to let the boat sink with him in it? But Jesus calmly steps to the front of that boat, and he holds out his hand, and he says these words, Peace, be still. Do you know what the disciples say after that? What manner of man is this? that even the wind and the seas obey him. See how that word is used? There had never been a man like that before because there's only one God-man, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, God with us. Emmanuel, 100% man, 100% God, has the power to speak and to calm the storm, has the power to touch and to heal, has the power to call dead to life and to resurrection. And so I'm telling you, 
The love of God, the love of Christ is unlike anything else. And you and I ought to evangelize because we are compelled by the love of Christ. If, if, if the love would cause Christ to traverse all the way from heaven to earth to bring salvation, shouldn't it get you and I up off of our couch? Shouldn't it get you and I off of the church pew? Shouldn't it get you and I out of the door of our house to go tell somebody the wonderful news that Jesus saves? Because truly what good is the love of Christ if nobody ever hears about it? And that's why Paul said this, hey, the love of Christ constrains us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead in our sins and our trespasses. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves. I don't have a right to live for myself. If Jesus died for me, my responsibility is to live for him. And if Jesus was motivated by love to go tell others, I ought to be motivated by love to go tell them. God, help us to love lost souls. God, help us to meditate this week on the love of Christ that brought him to the earth as a babe, that compelled him to remain on the cross through the wrath of God. We evangelize because we are compelled by the love of Christ. May I say this to you before we move on? Silence is selfish. Silence is selfish. Are you going to be so selfish as to not speak to somebody about Jesus Christ? Are you going to be so selfish that God himself came to this earth, uh, gave you the greatest gift that you've ever received for free? By the way, chances are somebody told you about it. You didn't just discover it on your own. And you're going to sit here and you're going to look forward to all the treasures and joys and blissfulness that is in heaven and you're not going to use the voice that God gave you. You're not going to use the circle of influence that God gave you. You're not going to speak to one person the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can't think of anything more selfish than that. And so God strike our hearts with conviction on this matter of being compelled by the love of Christ. And then fifth and final from our text today on evangelism is that evangelism is God's only plan for reaching the lost. God's, uh, God's only plan for reaching the lost is evangelism. Look back to our text. Verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead be ye reconciled to God. I have to be honest with you. 
I'm astonished by that. Evangelism is God's only plan for reaching the lost in this world. That seems a little bit reckless to me, considering that you and I are not very dependable in this matter. It seems to me that God would want to send messengers from heaven who would be faithful proclaimers of the gospel. But that's not how God chose to do it. He sent His Son, who trained a group of men before He went to the cross to provide the atonement. And then He commanded those men to go on to all the world to preach the gospel, to lead His church, to go on to all the world and to preach the gospel. And that it was not just an apostolic command, but that it was an ecclesiastical command, that it was to every member of the church of Jesus Christ. So that the entire responsibility of getting the gospel out has been turned over to believers like you and I. God did the work of reconciling the world to himself in Jesus Christ, but then he committed unto you and I the ministry of reconciliation. He committed to you and I uh, the, uh, the, uh, the word of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. That word ambassador means one that goes on behalf of another, goes in place of another. And an ambassador is not a free agent. When you think about the ambassadors of our own nation, they go under the authority of the United States of America. They go under the jurisdiction of the United States of America. And their only job is to represent the, uh, the aims of the United States of America and to take the message that uh, the United States government has given them. They are not at liberty to go and do whatever they want to do. And I would remind you that we have a greater ambassadorship than an ambassador of the United States. We are ambassadors of Christ. So that when Christ left this earth, he turned it over to you and I, and he says, you're my only plan for reaching the world. You're the only way that the world is going to hear. And friend, the only way that they hear is if you and I evangelize. If you and I speak the gospel, look, you don't have to stand behind a pulpit with a microphone to proclaim the gospel. In fact, the most effective, the most effective means of sharing the gospel I've experienced in my own life is one-on-one, -on -one, sitting down, having a conversation with one other person, and sharing with them the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, I began by sharing with them how God changed my life. I tell them I was raised in church, but that I didn't truly trust in God. That my life got off into sin, and that while I was searching and seeking all these things that seemed to give pleasure, that at the end of the day I was miserable and hollow and empty inside. But that a friend of mine invited me to go to church where I heard the gospel. I heard that we all had sinned. I understood that. I knew that I was a sinner. I did. I pled no contest to that. And that preacher went on to explain that that sin had a penalty, that God had to judge sin. And I understood that. I knew that if I broke the law, it wasn't uh, the judge's fault for enforcing the fine. But what was explained to me next is what changed my life. And that was that God 
loved me so much that he sent his son to die in my place for my sins so that he did not have to judge me. And it was the love of God that melted my heart that night to make me realize that there really is a God, that he's more than a cliche, he's more than a bumper sticker, it's more than a trite expression, but that he proved his love when Jesus stretched out his arms on the cross and died for me. And that that night, by faith, I called upon Jesus Christ to be my Savior. I asked God to forgive me of my sins and Jesus to save me. And it literally changed my life. I'm telling you, you don't have to have large portions of Scripture memorized to evangelize. You don't have to have a theological education. All you have to do is tell them how Jesus saved you. God made it so simple because he wants it to be a fundamental priority in our lives on this earth. What good is my worldview that is centered in God and knows all the facts if I don't ever go out and try to reach my world with the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is more than a debate. It is more than an intellectual exchange of ideas. It is regeneration through faith in Jesus Christ that transforms a lost, hell-bound sinner into a heaven-bound son or daughter of God. Only the gospel can do that. I think about what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome when he says, you know what? He says, I, I, I am ready to preach the gospel to you which are at Rome, for it is the power of God unto salvation. I'm telling you, our view of evangelism needs to be central to our worldview. And if you've not told anybody about Jesus in a while, would you make a decision today that this week you're going to take an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for saving us and giving us the indescribable, inexpressible gift of salvation. And yet making it so simple to express that even a child can understand and believe. God, I pray and ask that you would help me and everyone that hears this video to be more evangelistic to reprioritize our lives, to go out and to spread your word, to spread your gospel. Lord, may we bring the good news to somebody this week, I pray. In Jesus' lovely name, amen.